0: Hey, guys, it's Julio Ricardo Varela here, Latino Rebels Radio. We took the weekend off because of the holiday, but no worries. We're running a show from our friends at the Latino Media Collective. This is one of the shows that they did earlier this year. So the Latino Media Collective on Latino Rebels Radio.
1: Escuchando in Washington and all points beyond. This is Oscar Fernandez, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective, recorded at the studios of WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington, in Distrito Colombia, here on this Friday, August 2nd, 2019. We're also heard on the internet on our own website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You can also find us on Twitter under the name LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez. And today on the show, we put the spotlight on Australia. Yes, Australia. As we examine the small Latino diaspora that you have probably never heard about. If today's show proves anything, it is that you can find Latino communities in the most unlikely of places. Depending on where you look, the number of people of Latino descent in Australia varies from as little as 90,000 to almost 180,000. The Latino Media Collective has always said that there is no movement for social justice too small that it doesn't deserve our attention. And we strive to live up to our model by telling stories from places like Belize, Antigua and Barbuda, Western Sahara, Guam, Barbados, just to name a few places. So in the case of the Latino diaspora in Australia, the question has to be asked, what struggles and or challenges are we talking about in this community? Relatively speaking, the questions are perhaps more benign, but equally curious. Do Latinos in Australia retain Spanish? Do they have their own media? Are they mindful of what's going on with their American counterparts? Whom does the Australian Latino community comprise of mainly? And of course, more importantly, are they accepted in Australia today? These are lofty questions that we hope to answer today. And so we have with us on the show, Catherine Travis, She's a professor of modern European languages in the School of Literature, Languages, and Linguistics at the Australian National University in Canberra. In addition, she's the chief investigator in the Center of Excellence for the Dynamics of Language. She joins us today via Skype all the way from Australia. Welcome to the show, Catherine Travis.
2: Thanks very much, Oscar. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you.
1: It's good to have you with us. This is a very lofty show that we're trying to do here because if anyone understands the immigrant community in Australia, there is, when it comes to cultural diversity, the most visible groups are those of China and Southeast Asia for various obvious geographical reasons. The Latino community in Australia is is relatively speaking small compared to those other larger immigrant groups but it always has left me curious to find out a little bit more about this community. Even now, as we speak today, I've been studying this subject for months now, and I'm still not sure the actual population of people of Latino descent in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I would have to say, let's begin there. How many people of Latino descent live on Australia?
2: Well, the reason why you're not sure of the answer to that question is because actually we can't really answer that question because the Australian census doesn't ask uh, any question about ethnicity. So we can't get it directly from that. It asks ancestry, but ancestry is a very tricky one to interpret because many of our uh, people interpret it in different ways. So, for example, for our uh, people of Spanish-speaking countries, Many people who are actually born in Australia will list Australian as their ancestry. Uh, many Latin Americans will list Spanish as their ancestry. So some will list Australian, some will list them in Latin American country and some will list Spanish. So the numbers are impossible to interpret actually for ancestry. What we can get definite numbers on from the census are numbers of speakers of Spanish and number of people born in a Spanish speaking country. So, um, Speakers of Spanish in the 2016 census, which was the most recent census that we did, was uh, about 140,000, and that is around about half a percent of the Australian population. So although that seems tiny, it's important to 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 put that in the light of other other languages spoken in Australia. As you as you said, Mandarin is the most immigrants from China are the most well represented, and Mandarin is the most Widely spoken language, but even that is only spoken by about 2.5% of the population. So, altogether, 20% of the population, or a bit over 20%, speak a language other than English at home. But that's made up of some 250 languages, and it's very diverse. So, although Spanish sounds tiny, it's actually the eighth most widely spoken language other than English in Australia, after um, Mandarin, Arabic, Cantonese, Italian, Greek, Vietnamese. And I've forgotten what the other one is. Um, so so it's actually not that small. And also what's really interesting about Spanish with changes in Australian migration history, all European languages have been dropping in numbers. So we used to have the, our most widely spoken languages used to be Italian and Greek. Um, and we also had quite a lot of Polish, Maltese, German, and all of them are dropping. And the only European language that's growing is Spanish. And this is, of course, not because of European migration, but because of Latin American migration.
1: Yeah. Another reason why this community caught my attention because (laughs) one of my nephews actually took his wife on their honeymoon to Australia. And I think it was actually in, in Sydney. And yeah, he he actually came across a small enclave of Salvadorans in, in Sydney, I believe. And he was quite uh, taken aback because he wasn't aware that there was even, you know, even a sizable community, you know, where, where this Salvadoran community existed and they spoke Spanish and it, it caught him quite literally by surprise. And that brings mm-hmm. me to the next question here, which is whom are perhaps the most visible Latino communities in Australia and where do they reside in? We just mentioned Sydney, but there are other places as well, correct?
2: So Sydney as Australia's largest city is probably what attracts most of our migrants. And for, for, um, or the largest proportions of migrants. So we have large representation of migrants from across the Spanish-speaking world and from across the world in Sydney. Uh, Melbourne as Australia's second largest city, also attracts a lot of, of migrants, and there are quite some quite large uh, Latin American communities there as well. And more recently, we've seen more migration to Queensland, and in particular Brisbane, um, which is further north and quite a lot warmer. Than, um, than, uh, than more, more the more southern areas of, of Sydney and Melbourne. So, and in particular, there's Salvadorans are actually the population that is most well represented in Queensland. Um, in in terms of the the groups, so you mentioned El Salvador and El Salvador, uh, we do have quite a large Salvadoran population um, who came out largely in the 80s during the period of the civil war. We had some 10,000 Salvadorans come to Australia under a humanitarian program that. Australia set up specifically for the Salvadorans. The um, population has been very stable since then, so uh, it, we're not seeing a lot of new migration from there um, right now. Um, our other, our largest group is Chile, Chileans, uh, who came out in the nineteen seventies. Um, again, well, well, actually, the Chileans have come at different in different waves, so they've come in periods of different. Social trouble. So there was a large group who came out before the Pinochet government, and then there was a very large group that came out up to sort of about the 1990s. Um, and they are, they have been, yeah, they're just over a quarter of our Spanish speaking population. Um, Spain is another large group. The um, The Spanish migration is actually our earlier migration. The Spanish migrants from Spain came out. As part of a post World War II migration scheme that Australia set up to receive migrants from, well, post, uh, yeah, migrants from post World War II Europe, um, and we re- at that time we received a lot of migrants from Italy, from Greece, uh, from Poland, from many other countries, from Ukraine, and and Spain was part of that. So the Spanish have been here longer than the Latin American uh, residents. Um, Uh, So I mentioned Chile. Along with Chile, we had also a lot of Argentinian and Uruguayan migration that also came out during the dictatorships in those areas. Um, And then we have some newer groups who are growing massively. Colombia, in particular, is a group that's really growing a lot in size um, in recent years due to the the situation in Colombia. And Venezuela, although it's a lot smaller than Colombia, has also been growing quite a lot recently recently.
1: You know my nephew may not have been aware of the Salvadoran community in in Australia but the Salvador newspapers have been and the top two newspapers in the country in El Salvador a few years ago on their website used to have sections exclusively for this very small Salvadoran community in in Australia and I do say small mm-hmm. compared to the much larger enclaves that we see in places like in the US like like Los Angeles Boston, Houston, and even here in Washington, D.C. as well. Now, you mentioned um, migration from Spain, and it's my understanding that there are two interesting flashpoints with regards to the history of migration by Spaniards. One is the gold rush in the early part of the 20th century, I believe, in Australia. And the second one is, or the second effect that led to Spanish migration was you know the dictatorship of francisco franco in in the mid middle part of the 20th century correct mhm uh,
2: yes so um the gold rush was one thing and also sugarcane we had a lot of people from yeah. spain come out and work on our uh, on sugarcane and on plantations uh, uh, so we there are some pockets of So so most people have gone to the urban centres, but there are some pockets in sort of rural areas where we've had immigration from Spain to to, to work on in the fruit. The tomato industry was another one. Um, So that was sort of older. So we can see long-term migration from Spain. And, in, in fact, the Australian census reports immigration from Spain right from the beginning of the 1900s, and Latin American migration only reports from the 1970s. And up to that point, all Latin American countries were, in fact, collapsed into one. And from the 1970s, they start to break it down. So we can see that real shift. Um, yes, the, the, the Franco dictatorship was certainly one, one issue, but I, uh, but the bigger one was actually Australia's, the um, post-World War II migration policy, where we accepted people from uh, the the assisted we offered assisted migration packages to migrants from Europe. And that was, um, that was when that came out. In fact, I believe that Franco even suspended that agreement. So so we had a lot of migration from that, but that was suspended, and, and then we saw a pause. And then in 1986, once Spain joined the, the EU, uh, people yeah. from Spain looking for another area to go to had something much easier. And so the, the migration from Spain, we can see a real increase from uh, the 60s to the 70s, but from then it's been largely very stable.
1: This is quite interesting to me because here in Washington, D.C., we have a very large Central American community here. And anyone who follows the history of migration here in Washington, D.C., where we're based, will tell you that, you know, the story of Central American immigrants in this community started in the 1970s. But this is one particular small group in one particular city in the U.S., in Australia, we're talking about an entire diaspora that sort of developed in the 1970s, it seems like. So this may be something that you may have answered already, but I wonder if you could describe to us the first wave of Spanish-speaking migrants to Australia. You mentioned Chileans and and the Spanish as well. And again, this is something that's only fairly recently in the 70s, correct? Uh,
2: well, from Spain was earlier. So up until the 1970s, Australia had what was called the White Australia Policy, which uh, was an openly racist policy that was, I mean, it was named the White Australia Policy. You can't get much more racist than that. Um, and it was targeting uh, migrants specifically, uh, well, primarily British background, but also it opened it up to European background, but Northern Europe primarily Um, Spain managed to get in as part of that. And so our post-war migration was sort of uh, white and Spanish. Well, I guess we also had Italian and Greek, but those areas of Europe that were to come in. And Australia simply accepted no one from other countries except for in very special conditions up until around about 1973 when it was officially abolished. Um, at that point, the on, up until that point, the only way people could come to Australia from Latin America were we had some post-World War II European migrants who went, for example, to Argentina, and if they'd been in Latin America for less than five years, they still counted as European and were allowed to come to Australia. Um, th- that was, there was very limited uh, skilled migration also allowed from non-European areas. Um, but it wasn't up until 1973 that they that they opened that up and allowed people to to come in. So the first wave would be, I think, well, the, the post-war migration from Spain from Latin America. It would be following the 1970s, um, where we had uh, m- 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 big big migration from the Southern Cone. Actually, would would have been our first group. It would be from Argentina, from Uruguay, and Chile. The Australian government offered um, assisted packages for travel. Uh, and people it set up migrant hostels, people came and lived in these hostels, and then they moved to the surrounding suburbs. And when you look at the distribution of the community across Australia, you can see that these older communities are primarily in sydney and and to a lesser degree in Melbourne, and it's because of, I think of their original placement in these hostels in these major cities, and then they moved out to the suburbs. Um so then Chile came just slightly later than that. Um and then more recently, well then we had El Salvador came after that, that was sort of in the eighties with a special humanitarian program that was set up. Um uh yeah, that was the, the Salvadorian migration. And then more recently we're seeing as as I said, migration from Colombia in particular, massive increase in migration. From
1: so, Catherine, thank you for mentioning the white Australia policy, because there, there was something I was going to ask you in a moment there. And obviously, uh, I don't know if you follow the news here in the U.S., but the immigrant community here in the U.S. is going through difficult difficult times. And, you know, if anyone needs a valuable frame of reference as to where the current administration might be, you know, looking at or how, what their view is of the world when it comes to immigration and a migration policy. Uh, interesting frame of reference would be the white Australia policy from mm. from back in the day. Now, one component of the white Australia policy that I'm curious to know if it was active or part of, or still part of Australia in the 1970s as this community was developing is this thing called the dictation test? Was this still active during this time in the seventies, or was that al- already obsolete and taken out long ago?
2: Oh, I, I, unfortunately, I can't do that. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know when the dictation test was taken out, um, but certainly having a high level of English is has always been a priority um, in Australia. Uh, and if anything, it's actually strengthening more recently. Just recently, there was quite a bit of discussion about uh, raising the level of the English test that people needed to pass. In fact, some people said they were raising it to a level that was equivalent to getting into uni- having university level English. Um, uh, and there was quite a bit of debate about that. And in the end, it, it didn't go through, fortunately. But certainly, language has long been used as a way to, um, to, 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 to discriminate against against people. Um, I guess another interesting point about languages when we think about these waves of migration, um, during the uh, migrants that we received from sort of for humanitarian reasons were often unskilled. They often had a low level of of English and they had little economic power. Um, And we've seen a massive change to that now. The kind of migration that we're seeing is very highly skilled. Uh, people, for example, from Colombia, from Venezuela, very highly educated, very highly skilled, have some level of English, and also have sufficient money because Australia has ra- is continually raising the amount of money that you need to demonstrate that you've got, and and the criteria. So it's a very very different social group that we're seeing, a massive social change in in our migration. Which, um, of course, for Australia, it's it's a massive boon to get these very well-educated, very motivated people, and it's obviously just a massive loss for the for the countries that they're coming from.
1: Yeah, you um, know what? That's interesting that you mentioned that, That um, that's sort of the intellectual brain or the brain drain, as one might call it, that whenever there are crises in places like the aforementioned El Salvador or in, or in Chile, it's the intelligentsia of the country that's leaving. Um Because of some form of of persecution from wherever, wherever country that may be in question here. In the case of El Salvador, it was uh, a horrendous, you know, civil war in the 80s that led a lot of people, including my own family, to to immigrate to the U.S. in the 1980s, not knowing Mm -hmm. (laughs) that that we knew that Australia was an option during this period in time.
2: So certainly we can see that our Spanish-speaking population is very high-achieving in some ways. If we, I was just looking at the census to compare uh, education levels for people who report to speak Spanish at home with those who report to speak English at home, and interestingly, our Spanish speakers, a much higher proportion have uh, completed high school, um, and a higher proportion have also attained a bachelor's degree at university. Um, so I think this is consistent with these very well-educated uh, people who are coming out to Australia. Uh, interestingly, a lower proportion have attained a postgraduate degree. So I'm not sure whether we're seeing some sort of ceiling effect there, or um, yeah, or, or what's going on with that. But certainly, we can see we're very clear to see the high high status of education level of these migrants.
1: We're speaking with Catherine Travis. She's a professor of modern European languages in the School of Literature, Languages, and Linguistics at the Australian National University in Canberra. We're speaking about the Latino diaspora in Australia. This is the Latino Media Collective. We're going to take a quick break right here. Back with more in a minute. Stay tuned.
0: In yeah. my yard, the
1: was Yothu Yindi, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Reminding everyone that you check out this episode and our previous episodes on our own website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You could also find us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez and we're speaking about Latinos Down Under, the Latino diaspora in Australia. And once again, we're speaking with Catherine Travis, who's a professor of modern European languages in the School of Literature, Languages and Linguistics at the Australian National University in Canberra, And once again, she joins us via Skype all the way from Australia. And I said this at the first half of the show, but I'll say it again, that, you know, anyone who wants to understand the struggles that immigrants are going through right now here in the U.S., a valuable and useful frame of reference would be the white Australia policy. It's a story that, you know, has a whole bunch of cases that may be relevant today. One case that came to mind during the course of my research was the story of of Nancy Prasad. And, uh, you know what, it's a story to me, in my opinion, that sort of, you know, tells us a lot about the— the the unfortunate stories that we see now in 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 the U.S. today of of family separations and the case of Nancy Prasad I encourage everyone to look it up and and see what you know uh, discriminatory xenophobic immigration policy looks like both yesterday and today now getting to the issue of linguistics this is something else that caught my attention Professor Travis and this is something that you've sort of covered a lot in your research, which is you know how or this thing called code switching that that you refer to. I'm curious to know if the concept of Spanglish exists in Australia because it's a uh, terminology that's sort of been accepted here in the u s but it's my understanding that before we started the show, you have a contrary view over the word Spanglish and the concept of it. Can you explain it?
2: Yes, I'd be very happy to explain that. So people use Spanglish to describe uh, typically the way Spanish is spoken in the US. And yes, they also do use it in Australia where people mix what, what they say is that people mix up the two languages. And it's not Spanish. It's not English. It's just kind of a mix of both of them. Um, And while I know that a lot of Latinos use it with great pride that this is the language that we speak, another way of looking at it, another way of perceiving that is to say that, well, you don't speak Spanish. What you speak is Spanglish. You don't speak real Spanish. You just speak Spanglish as though a version of Spanish that includes some mixing with English is somehow an inferior variety of the language. And I think in some ways, and there's been some literature about this, that it disempowers the Spanish speakers in the US and disconnects them from this major world language because they're said not to speak that major world language. What they speak is Spanglish. Now, when we look at what what people call Spanglish, what it actually is, what speakers are actually doing, what they're doing is they're incorporating a lot of words from English as into their Spanish um, and they are doing some switching back and forth between Spanish and English. And there's nothing rare about this. There's nothing... Um, that's worrying about the future of Spanish, about this. This is very, very natural in any situation where you have uh, bilinguals, where you have languages in contact. It's very normal that we borrow words from one language into another um, and that we would switch between them. So a lot of people don't know this, but of the English vocabulary, 45% of our words are of French origin. They were borrowed into English during the Normandy invasion of of what is now Britain. So that would also surely have been some kind of bastardised version of, of English because we had such intense borrowing, and yet the integrity of English has, of course, remained. So intensive borrowing of words in that way doesn't necessarily threaten the integrity of the language. In our research, what we've done is we've looked at the grammar. We've said, OK, fine. So these Spanish speakers are using a lot of English words. But what happens to their grammar? Does their grammar start to look more like English? And we've done this. Like I lived in the U.S. for 10 years. I lived in New Mexico and working with um, a, a colleague who's now at Penn State. We looked at um Spanish spoken in New Mexico among a long-standing bilingual Spanish-English community. And what we find when we look at their grammar, that actually the patterns of their grammar mirror very, very well the patterns of monolingual Spanish, which is really uh, impressive from a linguistic point of view. They can incorporate all of these words from English into their Spanish, but their grammar is still very much Spanish. So I think uh, uh, it's, it's worrying then to say that it's not Spanish, it's Spanglish, if it suggests that you don't speak that major world language. When in fact you do, you just have uh, some different words, which is a perfectly natural outcome of any kind of language contact situation.
1: I'll raise my hand and say that, yes, I'll use span, Spanglish from time to time amongst my other friends who are also children of, of Central American refugees. I'm fine yeah. with that. But, yeah, you know what? I, I agree with you that when it becomes a put-down or mm-hmm. s- sort of a, a a term of, you know, disenfranchisement, then, yes, it does become a problem. It does become a put-down, as you, as you said right there. One yeah. thing that, you know— raises my attention because this is such a small community uh, small immigrant community in Australia I'm curious to know you know because it's also so young as well that you know do second and third generation Latinos continue to speak Spanish afterwards because I'm I'm assuming that since this is so a small community I don't know how prevalent Spanish classes are. In yeah. Australia's education system, whether it be through primary school or through college, or how, or even how accessible Spanish is in in various parts of the country, as far as learning it is concerned.
2: Mm, yeah, well, certainly much less accessible than in the U.S. Uh, the the big languages, for historical reasons, that have been popular for for Australians to study at school have been French and German, and they continue to be the case. Um, High schools across Australia teach French and German and very few teach, uh, well, there are more now starting to teach languages, but they're overwhelmingly the most widely taught languages and they're overwhelmingly the languages that students flock to, I think simply for historical reasons. Spanish has actually become quite popular and at ANU, the Australian National University where I work, we are... Uh, the university that teaches more languages than any other university in Australia, and Spanish is one of our top four languages. So our top two, so that, that would be French and German, which are just popular everywhere, um, Mandarin, uh, sorry, not German. Sorry, I take that back. It, it, so our, I'll start again. So at, at ANU, which um, is a major centre for language education in the tertiary sector in Australia where I work, our top four languages are French, Spanish, Mandarin, Chinese, and Japanese. So Spanish is up there with the top four, and it's coming to be taught in more schools as a second language. Um, We also have Australia gives quite a lot of support for what we call community community language schools. So in Australia, we tend not to talk of heritage languages, which is a term often used in the US. We talk of community languages as languages that are vibrant in our community. Um, And there is Uh, some government support for community language schools and there certainly are several Spanish community language schools um, and uh, a lot of people go to those. The the Spanish government used to also support schools uh, because the largest population used to be migrants from Spain. Now with increased migration from Latin America, they've they've broadened out and and most of these schools, you'll see many more Latin American kids or, or children of Latin American families. Than other families. Um, So so that's been a really good initiative um, and they've been very successful. Uh, Not not all children would go, would have access to them. Um, There are also quite a few some very active people in the community. The Chilean community in particular is very active as our largest group. So they have major Chilean Independence Day. They do major festivals in many different centres. They have a magazine that they put out associated with that. There's several sort of small scale um, community-based organisations that try to uh, spread information about the community and often that's also associated with language opportunities. Um, yeah, so I don't know if if we would have greater retention. I think the thing that that most helps retention of the language is the influx of first generation migrants who are dominant in the language. It's it, Australia follows the standard that we also see in the US where second generation tends to speak be dominant in English and speak some Spanish, and then third generation only speak English, and Australia does tend to follow follow that trend. Um, what what boosts it is areas where you've got a large influx of first-generation migrants. Um, so, for example, in the Colombian community, we've got a very large influx of first-generation migrants proportionally that will help a lot to to keep up the Spanish within that community. And I should also say that there's a lot of mixing across communities as well, because no one group is big enough to be uh, independent. So my experience has certainly been that we get the Colombians getting together with the Salvadorians and the Chileans and the um, Argentinians. There's a, a lot of unification across that, which helps create a larger feeling of a community.
1: Okay, so let me ask you a difficult question here, because we played Yotu Yindi, Ah, During a music break, and that was a very popular Aboriginal group from back in the '90s. I'm curious to know if, at any point in time, during your research and looking at this very small community, does does you know does at any point in your research does the Aboriginal people come into play with regards to? This looking at this diaspora coming from another part of the world because I could tell you this here in the U.S. Um, the show that follows us is is Jay Nightwolf and both m- myself and Jay have always made the connection between Native American and the people from south of mm-hmm. south of Mexico or south of south of mm-hmm. Texas with regards mm-hmm. to unity with regards to indigenous peoples who just happen to be from various other parts of the world so. Again, you know, this is maybe a tough question, but, you know, at any point in time, do the aboriginal community, you know, play any part or any role or just out of curiosity, look at, you know, the indigenous from other parts of the world coming here, coming to Australia in this case?
2: Wow, that's a great question. Um, no, it's actually never Come up, my feeling is that there's minimal, absolute minimal interaction between the Spanish speaking or the Latino community and the Aboriginal community. Um, the Aboriginal community in Australia is very disenfranchised uh, when they live in the urban centres. You know, many of them live in poorer areas, um, but not the migrant areas. It, it would be my experience. They're sort of quite separate. Mm-hmm. Areas, um, so no, I think that there's not that feeling of connection with that group of people. I don't know if in the states, because in the in 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 the states, of course, there's also from Latin America, there's also uh, a lot of indigenous people from Latin America who are Hispanic, uh, Hispanic and indigenous. So I don't know yes. whether that makes a difference there, whereas we we have that much less here. Um, also, the, the Aboriginal population of Australia is very small. It's about 2.5%. So in, in daily lives in urban centres, and this is also partly because of the, the, the disenfranchisement of them, but in daily life in urban centres, you d- wouldn't come across that many Australian Indigenous people. You need to would go to other areas to meet them. So there's very little mingling and I, I feel very little sense of identification across those groups.
1: You mentioned that you lived in the US for quite a number of years so I'm pretty sure that you might be familiar with media outlets like Univision and Telemundo here mm-hmm. here in the US and these are very large multimillion if not multibillion dollar you know media outlets here in the US that cater to the Spanish speaking audience in the United States which is you know in the tens of millions of th- at this point I'm curious to know if if Australia has similar media outlets or do immigrants create their own independent media, whether it be television, newspapers, the radio, because, for example, back in the 80s, when the Salvadoran community in D.C. was developing, they created their own newspapers and they developed their own AM radio stations that... You know, strangely enough, are still in existence today and still thriving with a large audience. So, how, when it comes to the media, do immigrants create their own independent media outlets? Uh, they do.
2: They're, they're, they're quite small scale, they're run by community organizations, often with some you know, volunteers, possibly some government support. Um, but there are multiple sources out there that provide uh, – I'm thinking of actually have newsletters or sort of small magazines um, about the community, about events. There's some online stuff that circulates a little bit. Um but certainly no radio station itself that is dedicated to Spanish. Many of the um, community stations will have will have a, a program like, like this one, I think, that is dedicated, for example, to the Spanish-speaking or the Hispanic community. Um, but one thing that Australia does have that the US doesn't have is back in the in the 70s with the abolition of the white Australia policy and Australia was embracing a, a, a policy of multiculturalism and a lot of initiatives were set up to support uh, speakers of of minority languages of or of community languages um, and they set up a a television station a government sponsored television and radio station called SBS Special Broadcasting Service that was initially set up as an ethnic uh, television station and that shows a lot of content from the various community languages that are spoken in Australia so for example in the morning I think there's about four hours of news half an hour segments of of news from Spain news from Greece news from uh, different areas I can't remember Italy um, news given in the language showing natural news from that that country it shows a lot of uh, movies from uh, other other countries in fact very few movies just in English almost all subtitled um and there's a radio station associated that with that that also has segments dedicated to the different languages so that's been it it hasn't been just for the Spanish speaking of the the Hispanic community but it's been really wonderful for opening Australia's eyes more widely to the uh the, the culture associated with our many many community languages and I think there's nothing like that in the US actually
1: I'm glad that you mentioned SBS because I may have stumbled across it like a week before we had this conversation today. And I did hear the Spanish programming. It was mostly music. And, mm-hmm. yeah, the guy was speaking in Spanish with not a hint of uh, <laughs> any any Australian accent. I was like, wow, this could easily be played in any other radio uh-huh. station, not only in Latin America, but here in the U.S. as well. And... The would fact... have,
2: so the, the music would have been one segment. That's right. They also do music ones, but they also do news and then they do movies and all, all like programming all day from different languages.
1: Oh, yeah. That's that's something else I noticed as well, that I managed to find the music part of of SBS, but I couldn't get into the the news and public affairs component, which oh. for some reason I don't understand was blocked because... We're in a various other part of the world. And unfortunately I see this sometimes. Like for example, I try to look up something on the BBC and it's blocked because it's in because it's not available in North America. So mm. So Catherine, I mean, I think that it is like I said before, there's no movement for social justice too small that it doesn't deserve our attention. This is a very small community compared to the other immigrant groups in Australia. But I think it's still, in my opinion, worth examining to see, you know, I guess for me personally, what could have been had my family moved to Australia or even Brazil, what could have been, you know? And so, in I think that's, that it is, I don't know, it just it just blows my mind that there's this small community that... Otherwise, doesn't get the same attention that other communities in other parts of the world deserve, in my opinion. So we're almost out of time. So before we let you go, you know, Catherine, we are speaking to an American audience. What do you hope people here in the U.S., especially the Latino community here in the U.S., what do you hope people learn from this small immigrant community in Australia with regards to their American counterparts?
2: <laughs> uh. I guess one thing that I think is really interesting about the Australian, I mean, the, the small size, of course, but everything in Australia is small, right? We're, we're, we're small. Um, I think it's interesting that we've got a, a real mix of people. So I know in the U.S., you know, two thirds of the Hispanics or more are of Mexican origin. And here we just don't have that. Our largest group are Chileans, which are a quarter. Our next group are from um, Colombia, which are, are are sort of relatively close to that, Um so, we've got many different cultures coming together, and in a sense, they do turn to each other for support um, which which to, to create a larger feeling of community. So maybe that's what it is that we can lean on our um, like-minded uh, if they're not compatriots, you know, culturally linked people to 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 form a larger community and retain our sense of culture and our language, uh, even living as a minority group in a country far, far, far away from home.
1: And this is something that still piques my curiosity now, and I hope to expand on this, you know, in the coming weeks and months ahead. So with that said, we've been speaking with Catherine Travis. She's a professor of modern European languages in the School of Literature, Languages, and Linguistics at the Australian National University in Canberra. In addition, she's also the chief investigator in the Center of Excellence for the Dynamics of Language. So Catherine Travis... Thank you very much for being on the show with us.
2: Thanks very much, Oscar. It was great to talk with you.
1: Absolutely. And with that said, that is it for today's show. We want to remind everyone that you could check us out on our own website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. So on behalf of my co-producer Abby Roberts this is Oscar Fernandez saying thank you very much everyone for listening to the show that's it for today's show adiós nos vemos ciao Mom people stop to the day Mom people stop to
0: the day Mom people stop to the day but stay strong and survive today Mom people stop to the day Mom people stop to the day Mom people stop to the day. day but stay strong and survive not long ago, my people live simple, just nice and slow Along came a ghost named Captain Cook He was an evil man, you won't read that in a book Took a look at the land and said, look what I found Stuck a flag in the ground and said, owned by the ground Without a sound, this country was shut down Battle mountains, battle mountains that screams so loud Our worries, worries, worries stand proud Tears run on like rivers, my people with with shivers From the cold. and the I quiver with hate at the rate of their faith that they take and they break this country that they raped. Battle Mountain, Battle Mountain, take it back. Battle Mountain. What's invasion day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong. in survival day. What's a straggler day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong. in survival day. What's invasion day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong. in survival day. What's straggler day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong. Should make a list of things that make me sick. Memory cough and spit. Outstretched fingers. Close slowly into a well-tightened fist. I stand upon Parliament land. Take a swing, knock down doors. Demand appropriate laws. Fix wrongs, blows. Rewrite the education system. This is an angry woman's criticism. This is an angry woman's criticism. January 26th, they brought crooks and convicts, criminals and killers, kind of the wrong mix. Is this the fate for Australia Day? Celebrate something that started this way. What's Invasion Day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong, it's Survival Day. What's Stray Day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong, it's Survival Day. What's Invasion Day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong, it's Survival Day. My people suffer to the day, but we still stand strong and survive the, the We about the coach, i keep it alive. Take it back, take it back. Gotta love this country, the people are side. Take it back, take it back. To go, keep it alive. Take it back, take it back Got to love this country, the people inside Take it back to Battle Mountain Invites racism, leads the night Put away differences for the rest of your life Have fun, pump it up, ride right? together i'ma glide and slide like the dance was a fight i'ma get down tonight stay out of the stride i grab a pen live a life try to comprehend get up stand up pump up the beat move my feet jump around pound the ground make nothing but stamp of sounds worldwide i'ma get around windward bound Australia underground tomorrow i stand the rations no man never brainless always stay spontaneous what's invasion day my people suck it to this day but we. Strong in survival day. What's a strange day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong in survival day. What's a strange day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong in survival day. What's a strange day? My people suffer to this day, but we still stand strong in survival day. Battle mountain, I guess. Battle mountain, I guess. Battle mountain. Silent shiver on the moving, flowing Built up anger, was like a current But and lies, I smell like it's pungent. I smile with the sun, high fears like a shadow Dance in the dust as I walk through the meadow Dance in the dust as I walk through the meadow Dance in the dust as I walk through the meadow Dance in the dust as I walk through the meadow